story makers. I am Elizabeth Stark Powers. And I'm Angie Powers. And we're here with Christine Young Oak Lee. And um, I'm going to introduce her with her own very own bios because she has the absolutely best bios I've ever seen. I, I won't read all of them, but um, I'll start with the official bio, um, which is Christine Young Oak Lee has a memoir called Whole and a novel, Gollum of Soul, both of which are forthcoming from Echo. Her short fiction and essays have appeared in journals and anthologies such as Ziziva, Guernica, the, the Rumpus, Hyphen Magazine, BuzzFeed, and Men Undressed. Born in New York City, Christine earned her undergraduate degree at UC Berkeley and her MFA at Mills College. She has been awarded a residency at Hedgebrook, and her pieces have been nominated for a Pushcart Prize and placed in competitions such as the Poets and Writers Magazine Writers Exchange Contest, Glimmer Train Open Fiction, and others. So that's then we have the super short bio wants to be Gryffindor, but is really Hufflepuff. <laughs> um, and the let's see this the uh, I'll go to go to the honest writer bio. Christine works at a dining room table surrounded by piles of teaching materials and student papers that need constant grading, and she writes with a needy geriatric wiener dog who smells like corn chip Fritos on her lap, and another needy wiener dog with feral survival tendencies who's up to no good somewhere in the kitchen. She should be running and exercising, but instead she's baking cookies and eating them by herself in front of her laptop, trying to revise her novel, She is Very Pale. And the honest uh, mother of a toddler bio, my name is Minion. I'm occasionally allowed to feed myself and write. For that, I am grateful. I am still very pale. <laughs> um, I guess I only skipped the social media bio, bio, which I think is just due to my own lack of sophistication. So I'm just going to read it, too. <laughs> it is Hufflepuff, Honey Badger, Crisis Unicorn, Writer, Mom, Backyard Chicken Owner, Memoir, Whole, and Novel, Golem of Soul, both, both forthcoming from Echo. <laughs> it's like a poem. Anyway, welcome, Christine. Thank you. <laughs> Those are just wonderful. So, um, Angie, what are you working on this week? Uh, well, this week I'm working on a few things. I'm finishing up the synopsis, and by finishing up, I mean writing again from the beginning the synopsis for uh, my novel. I am also working on another grad school application. So <laughs> one can never apply to too many grad schools and have too many master's degrees. <laughs> truly, truly. Uh, with the synopsis, are you, um, are you finding that your experience with film and film treatments and all of that is, is helping you write the synopsis? Can you speak to the art of synopsis writing while you're from the midst of it? Um. Well, basically, I'm just using kind of a structural format. So looking at the seven steps that we talk about and kind of just doing an abbreviated ordinary world, abbreviated inciting incident, abbreviated. Um, and then the novel is unusual, well, not unusual, but it's kind of interesting to do it in that format because it ends up, since there are three main characters, essentially, um, tracking all three, uh, makes it really easy to get to um, the word count. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of material in there. Yeah. Well, cool. Um, and Christine, what are you working on this week? This week I am writing my memoir. It's a, I, I've been, uh, I've come to just give people updates. So I'm actually this week writing chapter 11, which I kind of giggle at because <laughs> so I'm on chapter 11 um, and uh, just kind of plugging through. Mm -hmm. 
Awesome. Well, I'm going to come right back to that as soon as I figure out what, what to say about what I'm working on, because I want to hear all about that. What am I working on this week? Um, you know, having sent off a chunk of my memoir, um, I guess I'm, I'm trying to um, figure out how to move forward before I get feedback. And, um, and I, <clears throat> I'm sort of looking at two things. One is deepening my knowledge of that main character of my memoir, who is so opaque and mysterious to me, um, that being me. And, um, <laughs> and then also, um, just trying to move forward with, you know, the story, um, and, and just keep expanding and deepening. I don't know about you, but I, I find that I, um, I write like very short kind of tight pieces. And, and then my readers say like, okay, open it up. Go, do we want more, go deeper, slow down. So I'm trying to, I have to get in there and do that stuff. Um, so that's me. <laughs> So, um, and I don't think we have a whole lot of business from last week. We did have a question actually uh, come in. Um, I don't know if you want to take a question right now, Angie, about um, character flaw. Okay. Um, maybe we'll do that quickly before we, and, and also Christine, if you have any insight into this, you're welcome to. The, the question was about different ways of handling the, the character flaw and that the options were, were given as follows. Um, one, character flaw resolved so it goes away. Two, character learns from it, discovers another flaw, la-di-da. Three, whatever I haven't thought of. <laughs> so, um, any thoughts on handling character flaw? It sounds like in terms of arc, maybe. Well, um, just in terms of the things that we sort of talk about, the character flaw helps, you know, drive the bad decision-making of your character. And that final, at the end, when you're having like that final battle or final conflict, the character is sort of coming face to face with that belief um, or that way of being and needing to choose either something different or stay where they are. So, um, you know, it does, it's not necessarily neat, like, oh, now I will never do this thing ever again. But the person has grown enough that the action they take lets us understand that the, the issue is not quite the same issue anymore. Does that make sense? Um, in a, in a, in a tragedy format, you would have a person not make a different choice. And so they would be, um, not learning and not growing. Their flaw would still be there. And remember, we're talking sort of about a belief. Um, when we talk about that character flaw, we're not talking about, um, the belief manifests behaviors. So you might have a single belief and that should shift if it's a kind of a traditional, you know, yay kind of story. Um, and if it's not, then that belief doesn't shift and they aren't able to take action in response to it, the things they've learned over the course of the story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, Christine. <laughs> Jump in. Uh, so, yeah, it's funny because like, I wanted to kind of tie in what you were talking about, Elizabeth, and, and also what Angie touched upon. Um, when I was starting my memoir, I really had to figure out uh, – you know, who I as a character was throughout and um, really focus on my flaws and the way in which my stroke and recovery changed me. Kind of hard to do because, you know, first of all, you're a character in your own memoir, but right. also <clears throat> you, have to, you literally have to do some soul searching and say, 
in what ways was I completely messed up? In what ways am I still messed up? And all that stuff. Because the, you have to tell a story. And a story is essentially about how a character changes. And a character may become flawed or a character may have started out flawed. And then the decisions made along those flaws kind of like form the story. So yeah, it's, it's it's like otherwise you're just the same person at the beginning and then the same person at the end. Um, so I had to really like think about. I'm like, okay, this is remember when we were in grad school, Angie, and how you found me in the computer lab with my gloves on because I was <laughs> back then. <laughs> what were you doing with your gloves in the computer lab? I had disposable gloves with me at all times. And I got so OCD at some point, um, and I think the height of it was right before grad school. And I would wear these gloves when I went into the computer lab because I didn't want to touch the keyboards that, are, you know, at the time I was like, who knows what's on those keyboards? Right. Well, like, yeah, like the character in Glee. Exactly. So yeah. I would literally carry these disposable gloves in my pockets and stuff and put them on and then start typing in the lab. And no one ever said anything, but Angie was like, hey. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I know. I know. I know. But, you know, that, that's that gone into my memoir, too, because I'm like, well, that kind of drives some really weird decisions. Yeah. And, and then are you looking at like, and then you're looking at that as an arc, like what changed? Like did. Yeah. One of the things and, and, and being OCD for me was tied to being a control freak um, and being a perfectionist and like sort of trying to keep my world together just so. Um, and then, you know, of course, when you have a stroke that gets obliterated and, and, and uh, so whatever story you're writing, you're sort of just throwing stuff at a character and seeing what happens when the characters faced with like decisions or situations and how their flaws and their strengths play out mm -hmm. and then how it all pans out. So it makes the story interesting. You can't have a story without some flaw, whether it's at the beginning or the end. Yeah. So when you went, so you have a, uh, you've sold your memoir on the basis of a proposal, right? Yes. And so you had to kind of figure out the whole shape of the story and all these things about character without having written it. Absolutely. And um, and how what, how was that process for you? I mean, you knew it was about the stroke. Mm -hmm. but what what sort of didn't you know, and how did you figure it out? Exactly. So um, I'm really big on structure. I love structure. I like to. I mean, I crib structure all the time. Um, and so, you know, I, I ended up writing an 80 page proposal. Um, in two months. It was crazy. Wow. I just it was just so pumped. I was like, this is finally my chance after writing for all these years. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I send my kid to daycare and just like sit in my PJs and just type all day. And my agent was amazing in helping me with that. So I am privileged to have had that because um, I didn't have to send a proposal to my agent. But um, yeah, I had the narrative arc pretty well organized. Because um, I kind of, you know, there was it's memoir, so I didn't really have to make anything up. Well, I shouldn't have made anything. <laughs> <laughs> Not too much, anyway. <laughs> we'll, we'll dig into that question too. <laughs> and I sort of had it all arced out, and then each chapter would like touch upon facets of my recovery. Um, what I didn't sort out until I started writing it was um, were the literary devices I would use and the kind of language I would use. And mm -hmm. it turns out, you know, and that's sort of always a, a little bit of a challenge. And I have been very surprised as I've been writing my novel um, 
the, the sort of the literary aspect that's kind of bubbled up. Um, I incorporate a lot of Kurt Vonnegut into my memoir. It, it, appear, it's pro it probably appears disparate, but it's actually very relevant. Um, like, like what? Well, I was reading Kurt Vonnegut when I went to the emergency room, and I didn't realize yeah. I wasn't remembering a single word I was reading until after they told me I'd had a stroke, and then I looked down at this book, and I realized I'd only been turning the first two pages for two days. Been rereading wow. And so the rhythm of his language and the structure, and, you know, and his characters a lot, you know, Billy Pilgrim travels through time, and is completely, his life is fractured, too. So I realized how relevant that was to me. It was just complete fluke, luck, whatever. But um, so I, I'm cribbing. I crib a lot of things, but I've been cribbing Kurt Vonnegut. Nice, nice. Um, we actually had a question, Elizabeth. I don't know if you've been looking at the questions at all. Yeah. Um, we actually have a group member who herself also had a stroke, and she is interested to see how um, how has how you how have you changed as a writer? Are you more sensitive, for example? Are your words shorter? Um, so she's recovering from a more traditional stroke. Um. I think that I'm a much slower writer now. And by slower, I have slowed down time in my writing. I think um, 10 years ago, I would just write and just leave all things out because um, my mind was just moving fast. And part of what the stroke um, has done to me is it's made me very, gets me very tired very easily. I mm -hmm. kind of hide from the world when I get tired, um, but it makes me choose my words very carefully and it makes me kind of, um, absorb things more slowly. And so um, in my writing, it becomes just much more slow. Um, uh -huh. time slower. And so I think that's the most significant thing. I mean, of course, I also have weird aphasia things. I get my homophones mixed up in my writing. I don't, of course, when I say them, because they're homophones, you can't tell if right. <laughs> I have all these homophones, which is that I will only, um, with my sleep and um, I'm reading it again because I will reread it and be like I won't even see it so there's little things like that but I think strokes are unique they're like fingerprints they're different from each person um, and so your experience your mileage may vary and it will actually not may vary your mileage will vary um, as a stroke survivor yeah. and you, you said that before the stroke you um, would leave a lot of things out, I think you said, mm -hmm. writing fast. And but, and actually, I had just been about to ask you about the necessity of leaving things out when you're writing a memoir, because you have to choose what what kind of belongs. So, um, so I'm sure that you mean those in different, I mean, those, those are two different kinds of omission, but can you talk a little bit about um, maybe necessary omission as well? Yeah, I really, like, you know, my wiener dogs don't really make an appearance in my memoir. Uh, they were a significant what? part of my because, no. you know, my dogs, like, that's who I spent time with at home. Um, but I was just like, wow, there's just going to be a lot of dog stuff in this book. And <laughs> well, me not really be into the dogs, so um, there's not a lot of dog stuff. Um you know, sometimes I have to condense like all the meals I've had, you know, all the weird things that happen when you go out for dinner after your brain is completely screwed up and just pick out the one event. Um, turning points are really tricky in memoir because in real life, there's no, there's no like movie moment where you're like, this is when I realized my right. life. 
food eating to dinner, had to pick myself up off the ground. Um, I had to like sort of really think about what a turning point in my recovery was. And I was like, and you know, some moments stick out a little more and I had to really say, I think this is going to be the best illustration Mm -hmm. of what happened during that span of time. And so I had to omit all these other like stumbling, falling, picking myself up scenarios. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, there, there's that kind of omission. That's like purposeful omission for the narrative without making stuff up. Um, and then there's, for me, like when I underwrite, cause I do have a tendency to underwrite, um, Elizabeth, I totally, totally identify with that. I am not an overwriter. Um, people who overwrite make me feel envious cause I just go, well, in your revision, all you have to do is cut, which I'm sure <laughs> the overwriters are like, no, it's not like that. <laughs> like I will kind of be, I will put in place markers and say, I will write more about this later, or I know that I have to write about this because I just can't write about it now. So those are the two kinds of omissions that I experience as a writer. And you said sometimes you're coalescing things. I know that like, that's a technique that is allowed in memoirs to like put together sort of different moments to create maybe a more like linear holistic scene than might be in your brain. Yeah. I, I mean, as something I learned in my stroke is that memory is just this, I, I've been writing about it on a scientific level and writing about it from a, a narrative level, but you know, narrative is weird. Like you, you don't remember things as they actually have occurred. You don't, you, you sometimes never remember things ever again. Um, and the tricky part is that, in the wake of my stroke, what got affected most was my memory. So I have a little bit of wiggle room there. I'm kind of um, like, I, I have my diary that we're in which I wrote every single day, sometimes multiple times a day. So very fortunate for that. Um, and I can double check. I have my blog where I blogged every day, so I can double check. Um, but at the same time, part of the experience was that my memory was messed up. So I can play around with that to give the reader the experience of a messed up memory. Yeah, which is beautiful in your essay. I just love the the kind of, um, oh, it's not exactly the poetry of it, but the, but the, it's just, and it's not even lyricism. Those are those are too kind of floaty. It's, it's just so vivid and, and gorgeous and lush to read, as well as so fascinating. Thank you. I'm trying to get better with compliments. <laughs> um, thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. Um, so, and then are you, what's going on with your novel while all this is happening? So, um, I've got, put that on the back burner. Um, my mo- novel, of course, I have a contract for my novel due as well. I have a completed draft of it. Um, I'm, you know, making little notes when I'm like, ooh, this is what I'm going to do. This is what this character is going to be like. Um, and this is the same novel you've been working on since Mills, right? Yes, it is that same novel. Because what I want to say is it's awesome and I'm glad you have a contract for it and I'm excited to see it come out because that's, I, I remember loving that in, in program. And, and I haven't kept a single word. Um, okay. I, <laughs> I started my novel and workshop with Angie and was it 2005, 2004? Yeah. 2005. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you, know, you know, I've had a baby, a stroke and all that stuff since, but um, I actually think that nothing you read is still in that novel. I've probably thrown out twice as many words as I've kept. Right. Uh, 
So still, I, but I have faith. It's still awesome is what I'm going to say because it was so fun to, and I love the concept. I mean, the concept is phenomenal. Yeah, it's fun. That golem is great. It, it's a, it's every time I get in like this, like what happens next? As you write fiction, you're like, I can't figure out what happens next. I just asked this character, like, what mischief are you going to get into? So it's just this, I have this mischievous character who drives a narrative for me as much as much as the novel. Awesome. So really, it's me. For me, it's about um, um, figuring out like what mischief. The, the golem character we'll get into. Really yeah. Trouble, yeah. Someone this week was saying to me, trouble is a better is a better word or a more understandable word than stakes. Like, she, you know, he was saying, you always say stakes, but I like just the idea of, you know, trouble. <laughs> All right, we've got more questions coming in from our folks at home. Um, I think you may have answered this one a little bit from uh lee how do you manage to work on two books at the same time and i think your answer was put one on hold yeah i just i just don't do i don't i can multitask um and sometimes i will write nonfiction to give myself a break from the fiction mm -hmm. um but for the most part i just do them consecutively and then are you involved in the promotion of your upcoming books as well Oh my gosh. Yeah. I have a feeling. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I know that we're, you know, there's going to be a PR meeting at one point and we're going to do some brainstorming and certainly going to do have my, um, obligations and commitments to publicizing my book and which I'd be happy to do. And, mm -hmm. uh, so without a doubt. Do you have okay. pub dates yet? Pardon? Do you have pub dates yet? Um, no, not exact dates. I do know that the memoir whole is the goal is to have it out in fall of 2016, which is next fall. Mm. And then for the novel, Golem of Soul, the goal is to have that published in late 2017. Okay. It's going to be a busy couple years. Yeah. <laughs> but then by then your child will be what, like four? Yeah. I think she'll be three. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good because I was just kind of worried. I'm like, what if she's three and she's at the height of temper tantrums? And uh, so, yeah, she'll be four. Things will maybe more mellow. Just by five, it's it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> I only have I only have two and a half more years to go. Oh, there you go. No, it's going to be great. Um, one person asked a question. I'm not entirely clear about this question, so I'll, I'll just read it exactly as it is, and perhaps it'll be clearer to Elizabeth or to you. Uh, did you find your character changed slash changes with the change in approach in rendering her onto the paper? If you, and I think that means if so, is that frustrating or just the way it is, et cetera? Maybe like we were talking about your character, you as a character. So maybe it's that the way your character changes as you put her onto paper. Um, not for my memoir. For my fiction, most certainly. I'm like, oh, goodness, this happened. And now they're just not what I think they are. Because at a certain point in my fiction anyway, my characters take on a life of their own. Mm -hmm. So like I kind of go, this is what you're going to be like and that this is how I intend for you to appear and this is your background and then at a certain point they just start doing their own thing and sometimes I will feel very stuck on my fiction and um, almost always it's because I'm a tyrant almost always it's because my characters are like 
no, that's not who we are. And also you have screwed us over so many times. So <laughs> can we have something fun to do? So I'll just be like, Hey, so I'm going to give you this horrible PTSD, but I'm going to like get you late. So, you know, things like that. I have to negotiate with my characters. So for me, it's delightful because I know that that's when my, my draft is finally taken off when my characters start being different. Um, for my memoir, it's a little different because it's, it's me. I, I have to stay true to myself. Um, so I have to kind of check in um, and make sure that I don't off-road too much. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it has to be the truth. Sometimes it's dismaying because I discover something about myself. So um, that's a little, there's that. I'm like, oh, I did actually So um, it's a different experience between memoir and fiction. <laughs> Sorry, we're just, I'm going to mute Angie while she deals with our troubled dog. Um, great. We have another question. Um, was it hard to remember to write in your diary in the early days after your stroke or to discipline yourself to do it? I just automatically did it. Um, my issue was that I was in denial. So I, I blogged the afternoon I'd had my stroke and, um, I clearly didn't understand language and I was saying the weirdest things and my friends were like, Hey, you know, something's wrong with you. Um, I was writing in my diary because I'm kind of obsessive about that. And I became even more obsessive about it after I had my stroke because one of the things I'm very scared of in life is to forget. I never want to forget anything. That's why I'm um, constantly taking pictures and documenting and doing all kinds of things like that. Cause I never want to forget. So I think if only, if anything, it picked up. Um, and I was in such, no, I was just like, you know, I was reading a book that I didn't, you know, I wasn't recalling throughout the first couple of days, let alone just writing and scribbling nonsense into my um, journal. <laughs> did, did you ever did you did you finish it that book i did eventually go back and read it and i'm i'm rereading it over and over now as i um write my memoir awesome um <clears throat> oh yeah i should say it was slaughterhouse five <laughs> I don't ah. yeah. <laughs> okay we have more questions let me just uh, from our from our small invited audience um, how do you handle sections of story in, in memoir that you don't know or are unlikely to be able to dig up? What do you think of dream sequences, magical realism? Can an author's note, you know, the, I think she means like saying, you know, this is what I've done and this is, these are the, the you know, le this is the leeway I've taken or whatever. Can an author's note really suffice? Um, I think it could. It just depends. For me, I don't feel comfortable with that. Um, uh, the way I'm dealing it with my memoir, um, without giving too much away, is that in the parts that I don't remember, I'm turning to science and biology because I have the privilege of writing about something that happened to my body. Mm. And so there's a lot of research on that. And so I do a lot of scientific research because I, you know, one of my passions is um, science, even though I didn't pursue it beyond being pre-med. So I get to do all that. Just like if you wrote something about, if I were to write a memoir about my about depression, then I my tendency would be to do research on depression and have that incorporated into my personal narrative. Um, because one of my hangups is I don't I find it boring to talk about myself 
for 300 pages. So, and, and just, and, um, it makes me feel uncomfortable. So the way I cope with that is like, Oh, Oh, and, and look at this, look at these facts. I've got these facts for you. So why don't you go look at this for a while before we turn um, the camera back on me? So we all have our little quirks. So my little quirks are showing up in my memoir. Even when I sit, I don't have to explicitly say I'm a control freak who doesn't like being in the spotlight, who wasn't prioritizing herself. You can see it in the narrative where you're like, okay, she's constantly going off on these riffs about science. Um, and looking at herself objectively from um, a scientific lens. Mm -hmm. So there's little things you could do um, to compensate for things you don't m remember, um, and they can be handled uniquely. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what memoirs do you like to read, or, or what memoirs are, have inspired you? Gosh, I love Wild. Um, I really love Susanna Callahan's Brain on Fire, Callahan's Brain on Fire, which is about... Um, her, like her, her brain just completely like went on vacation for a month. That's a great book. Mm. Um, I really like the bold Taylor's stroke of insight. Um, I just read a ton of memoir, like, you know, Ann Patchett's true truth and beauty. There's just a amazing set of like, uh, I mean, I, I've been reading memoir since it first came out, like, you know, like before it was even cool. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, Prozac Nation, Elizabeth Wurzel's Prozac Nation. I think that was the thing that started it all. Yeah. Yeah. And I read all her subsequent memoirs, even though it's a little, I get concerned and want to give her a hug. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's part of the draw. Um, I, I also promised um, that we would ask you about the, being on the other side of the slush pile um, and, be, and doing editorial work. So, um, yes. You were our um, editor of Kartika, the fiction editor of Kartika Review. Um, how long have you been doing that? I don't, wow, how long have I been doing Kartika? Kartika. Almost 10 years. Um, yeah. I've been on and off the fiction editorial staff. Um, I wanted to go work on my novel and I felt all like oh, I have all this bad juju rejecting people. I just want to go work on my novel. So I was a um, editor at large for a little bit, and then I came back after I finished a draft and went came back on as fiction editor. Um, and right now I'm just so busy with deadlines for both my books that I just don't think I'm doing the role justice. But I was there for like ten years at least, and I've been doing some copy editing and freelance editing on the side. And, and so can you tell, I mean, what have you learned as a writer about, uh, you know, edit, you know, about kind of submitting work and all of that, or, or what, you know, what can you tell our writers about, you know, from the editor's point of view? <laughs> yeah, so much. Um, you know, there's, I don't know if you want information on like sort of the tactical parts, like how do you craft a query letter and the etiquettes, the etiquette of interacting with editors or, um, all that but you know like for me it's, a, it's all about it's like applying for a job a little bit you know it's a little bit like that where you want to pay respect but you don't want to be obsequious um but at the same time you don't want to sit there and have too much swagger because mm -hmm. uh, you know it's a little like hey I remember there was like a, a Facebook post that you had put up at one point, which was sort of like, go ahead and read what the editors are actually asking for before you submit. Like you were having, I don't know what had happened, but. 
It's unbelievable. It's like, okay, look at how much, what the parameters are for submission. You know, um, look up the editor's name. It take it, it means a lot. If you bother to click twice on the website and look up the staff, you know, masthead and see the, the fiction editor or nonfiction editor's name and say, dear John blah, or dear Jane blah. Um, and they, you know, you feel like, wow, they did some research to actually adhere to word counts, to actually have read an issue or a couple of pieces out of there. Um, if you reference those pieces, even better. You don't have to just, but short and sweet query letter that shows some level of consideration. Um, and then really your piece should speak for itself and you should send your best work and it should be formatted the way they want it to. <laughs> Double space type, you know, 12 size 12 font, preferably Times New Roman. <laughs> it's kind of like a job interview. You want to um, dress appropriately for the office space. You wouldn't wear some the same thing you were you'd wear to interview with Anna Wintour of Vogue as you would interview at an investment firm as you would wear to an interview to teach. So you have mm -hmm. to sort of figure out and do your research and, and see who the hiring manager is and remember their names. Um, if you get rejected, you don't then go, why, why not? <laughs> <laughs> did, did, yeah. it, did it help you take rejection less personally to kind of see the, the I guess, you, you know, the, the stack of submissions and the, pro, I mean, can you talk a little bit about reading through the submissions yeah. and how it changed your view of rejection? Absolutely. Like, you know, when I started, I was like, oh, it would be cool, cool to be on the other side of the desk and see what happens. Um, and I, and most of my friends who have done editorial work, especially at Millet Mags, really learn a lot about what not to do and what catches, you know, just how to be courteous in um, a way that, I don't know, nurtures a good relationship with an editor. Um, and for me, it was just like, oh, wow, you see it over and over again. You see the good letters over and over again. You see the people who are prepared over and over again. And then every once in a while, what pops out are people who are just have a lot of swagger to the uh, point of being insulting, mm. uh, who just, you know, um, are like are just, you know, very like obsequious and want to please. And you're just like, you know, you just you know, the lack of professionalism really pops out after a while. So I learned by seeing these patterns, you're like, okay, like 80% of the people do this and it feels really great. And, um, you can tell that they did their research. Um, and it, and, uh, it makes you feel like when I accept this person, or if I were to accept this person, they understand what it means. And I feel like I don't have, um, I have a writer who can work with me on my hands, who understands. And then when you go through editorial with them, you can kind of anticipate that you're not going to get someone who's like, no, it's just completely perfect. What are you doing touching my prose? So it's, it's indicators for how you're going to work together. And sometimes there are ties. Sometimes, you know, painfully, um, my lit, our lit mag is tries to be very, very gender gender balanced. We try to publish, um, it's, it's an Asian American literary magazine. So we try to publish the entire diaspora diaspora. And if we are missing a few of the diaspora in one issue, we make sure that that's represented. So like one time it's like, I don't know what happened, but there were like a gazillion Filipino American writers who submitted. And I was like, wow, this is, they're so awesome. Um, and then like, 
you know, a dearth of Filipino American writers for issues to come. So we try to be balanced. But then that means sometimes there's a tie. Sometimes there's like two pieces um, and you're just like, I really, you know, there's two women and just great. And sometimes that query letter, sometimes the way you present yourself in your query letter breaks the tie. Um, mm-hmm. And it's sad to say, but that's the absolute truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And have you have you had any regrets about is anything you passed on or any like any fun stories about that? Yeah. <laughs> um, this is you know like sometimes you learn from sometimes like uh, you know like opening a little bit of, of a Pandora's box. So there was like one guy I was just like my work is amazing, and um, you know and I it was good so I accepted it because you know I, I'm not gonna judge everything on a query letter and then the the i mean uh immediately thereafter he's like here's another amazing piece of work and i'm like okay dude um so there was there's a little bit of that and there's um people who have sent me pictures of themselves with their dog in the query letter um there's just a whole lot of interesting things uh name dropping like hey joyce carol Oates said i should email you i'm like really um <laughs> It all shows up, and yeah, I have quite a collection. <laughs> we do have one question, which harkens back to the writing part before the editorial. So I don't know if you want to wrap up the editorial, and then I'll. I think we've we've covered it pretty beautifully. Okay. So the question is, what is the difference for you between writing fiction and nonfiction? Well. Aside from the whole obvious, like in fiction, I have to make everything up. Even Mm -hmm. if it's based on people I know, I really have to make everything up. Um, I don't know what's happening next. And it's really hard for me. Um, uh, But it's my passion. With nonfiction, it's like a relief for me. This is how I always sum it, actually. So, and and it's kind of gory, so it might be a trigger for people with blood all right, I've got my seatbelt on. I'm ready to be triggered. I feel like fiction is, like, nonfiction is, like, kind of cutting yourself and making yourself bleed. Mm-hmm. And then I feel like fiction is you got to make the arm. you got to make up the arm that you cut, and then, you know, and then you have to cut that. <laughs> That's how I see it as. So um, people... some really upbeat metaphors I'm seeing here. <laughs> um, I, I write very dark things. Um, and, uh, I know people always meet me and they're like, you, you wrote that. I'm like, I know. Uh, huh. Uh, <laughs> uh yeah, I, that's kind of how it is. And both can be very beautiful. And the hardest part is the cutting and the hardest part is like getting that pain onto the page. And, uh, so both are very challenging, but that to me, it is in a nutshell, like I have to make the world or I have a world, but I have to produce the same thing for each. And what do you do to kind of, um, to get yourself there. I mean, you talked about, you know, writing in your pajamas, like sending the, the toddler off to preschool and writing in the pajamas, but like, are there any kind of rituals or any, anything you do to enhance your, let's see, that sounds drug-like. I just, but anyway, to support your, your, you know, the dream state of writing or anything. I, yeah. Um, it used to be very hard because I, um, you know, had a, had a, had a day job at a tech company. I was married to somebody who was not in the literary world and, um, not, you know, like supportive in his own way, but not very interested. Um, 
And so it was like a big mind shift. I, I couldn't do it. I'd, I like spent the whole day putting this wall up and then I'd have to figure out how to disassemble it each time. And that was very time consuming and exhausting. But now I'm, I, I have the privilege to just write full time and um, I'm, you know, not with the same person. I'm with somebody who's also an artist. So it's, even though I have a toddler who takes up a lot of my energy, I don't think she saps my creative energy. She just saps my energy. <laughs> uh, so for me, it's, it's writing in the morning. Sometimes I don't feel like writing the sad scene and I will just quibble around and do what I can. Uh, but for me, it's just finding, I think having a kid just made me really like, really appreciative of any time and space I have. And for me, it's just, if I can shut the door and have like an hour to stare at the screen, I'll take it. I, mm -hmm. I didn't be like that. I, I'll just take it. I'll be like, all right, this is when it's happening. <laughs> awesome. Yes, it does. It does make it for a great attitude to shift. Yes. Um, <laughs> and then, yes. Any advice that you would offer to our all the writers listening? Anything that like you you got or, or learned that just has been uh, sustaining for you? Read, 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 read. Um, I think all the writers say that, but I, I mean, I find myself um, when I get stuck on the the manuscripts I'm writing right now, I l literally pick up a book and I am very inspired, um, and I get inspired not only from the content of their writing, but I get inspired by their literary devices and their sense of craft. And sometimes it will light a, light something up for me um, so I can move forward. And also reading um, has helped me with my research too. Uh, mm -hmm. So I can kind of get more content. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, there's one more thing I actually meant to ask you about and didn't, which is, which is just a about the, the form of the proposal, of creating that proposal. We talked a little bit about the 80-page overview. Um, from Can you talk a little bit more about the component parts of the proposal and, and kind of pulling that together and how much also you've hewed to it as you've been writing? Okay, so the, you know, for, for memoirs or nonfiction, you usually sell it on proposal. My proposal was a, a total of 80 pages. About 25 pages of it was summary overview. So that's just the whole book summarized. Mm -hmm. um, then like there were a couple pages on um, comparables because you have to put a list of books that are you feel are comparable to yours in, in the market. And then um, a marketing and PR page and where you list things that you would do to sell the book or um, leverage sales for the book. And it doesn't mean, hey, I'm gonna go on a Today Show because you know it has to be realistic, um, whether it's your friends, guest blogging, whatever. So that's two pages of that. And then there are chapter summaries. Um, and each chapter should be about a paragraph and written in the voice of the book itself as much as possible. Um, and that for me ran another, I think maybe my chapter, my summary overview was maybe 15 pages. I have to go look at it. Mm -hmm. um, and then that'll, I think your chapter summaries will last like 20 pages. Mm -hmm. and then I submitted 40 pages. Um, and then the last section is sample chapters. Mm -hmm. So I submitted three sample chapters and that was about 50 pages. 
so when you say so the summary overview was was not in the voice of the book it was about what the book was going to be doing uh, I, I had a hard time with that so yes it's supposed to actually be in the voice of the book um but for me i think the summary overview was actually the most challenging part of the, the proposal to write um i didn't really have a big challenge writing the summary chapters um, the chapter summaries or the sample chapters so much as that overview and, and it's important because it's the first part of the proposal um i just was like and then this happens and then this happens and um it eventually got to um it got into good shape and so i found that i'm pretty much following the chapter summaries i'm finding myself collapsing some of the chapters um together and uh, beefing some chapters up, but for the most part, I'm following the arc of them. And do you, do you have any idea what it was that kind of um, clicked for you when you got that summary overview into place? Because I, I know that challenge. <laughs> I don't know, my agent just said, is, I guess is good enough. Um, <laughs> um, we, I was very fortunate in that I had two editors who, um, with whom I, you know, like I, I talked to editors before I got my agent. Mm -hmm. um, I just had this very weird, atypical, invigorating, anxiety-inducing uh, process of securing a book deal. And so, um, you know, I, they generously offered to read the book proposal. So wait, so so what? So was the BuzzFeed essay made had brought editors to you? Is that what happened? My buzz, I wrote my BuzzFeed essay, put it out, I'm like, whatever, it's out. And then um, agents and editors started calling. I, I was just, I didn't know what to do. I, I was like, well, I don't have my book written, so maybe I shouldn't take the calls. And a very good friend of mine said, sweetie, you need to pick up the phone. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I talked to a good number of agents and editors and, um, you know, and that's how, and eventually that's how I ended up with my editor and agent. That is so awesome. That's kind of a dreamy, a dreamy way to have it. It's just unreal. But of course, let's just say that you're writing, working so hard, writing, you know, studying, writing, reading, being and being out there in the world and supporting other writers. And I mean, you know, it's not it's sort of that overnight, like overnight success after 10 years, right? No, it was not. Yeah, it was not an overnight success. I've been doing this for a long time. I've had a baby and a stroke since I started writing and since I first published my first piece. And I'm actually glad for my uh, psyche that it took this long. Um, if I had experienced this in my twenties, I don't know how much it would warp me, but mm -hmm. I am who I am. I'm over 40 and, um, you know, other things have clobbered me on the head more than this has. Um, so mm -hmm. I'm very grateful to that. And, and I feel very lucky. Awesome. Well, we're so, so happy. So the, the last thing we do is our steal this, uh, segment uh, where we look at something that we've come across recently that we uh, want to make our own. Uh, yeah. So um, would you like to start, Christine? I have so many things. I wrote them all down. Um, but the one, so I mean, I crib a lot. Like I've been cribbing Kurt Vonnegut for my memoir. Um, I've cribbed Nicole Krauss in my my uh, novel in terms of her language repetition. Um, mm -hmm. I definitely cribbed Chris Abani's Graceland, um, uh, the structure in that novel for my novel. Mm -hmm. uh, 
structure in Chris Abani's Graceland for my novel. So that's the structure I'm emulating. Um, I have put in a second person perspective uh, chapter in my novel, and that's cribbing Juno Diaz, who always manages to sneak in second person to his work. Yeah. The one thing I want to do that I've not gotten around to doing is I want to crimp Bolaño. Um, I crib Bolaño a lot. He does a lot of innovative craft level things in 2666. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of them is a grammatically correct 400 word sentence. Kudos to the translators for doing that. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> to do that. That's, that's on my to-do list. Um, I think, you know, it end up a short short or it can really make for an innovative chapter or whatever, but I, I definitely want to have that. Awesome. That, those are fabulous. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, we could we could really do a list, right? It's, yeah. It's I have awesome. books with like little like tags, tabs in all of them. And the red tabs are, you know, crib this tabs. Mm. Yeah. Good, good. And you want to go next? I'm sure. Well, uh, we just you're just starting, but I finished um, Ali Smith's how to be both and really enjoyed that. And in fact, I haven't been writing a lot of fiction as much lately and, and prose have been doing mostly screenplays and things like that. And, um, as reading that book really got me excited again about the possibilities of the page in prose. And so, um, I'm sort of interested in, she has a section that's very, um, not stream of consciousness, but perceptual. It felt, um, uh, I don't even know how to explain it. It's like a first person's perception. They are going through an experience that nobody reading it has been through um, by virtue of the fact that they're dead. So, um, <laughs> so you, you don't know what's going on, but after you kind of realize what has happened, it makes this amazing sense. So it's very, it's like perception, 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 and um, they kind of coalesce as a character and a person, and then the, what they've been through makes sense. So I would like to attempt, uh, you know, maybe even like a short thing that's just kind of that shift, that one shift of... Um, abstraction to concreteness that makes the abstraction make sense. Mm, mm, great. Um, well, I just finished reading Some Girls by Jillian Lauren, who is our next podcast guest, a guest, and she is a friend of mine. So I had read the, started reading the book when it came out and hit sort of some painful parts and actually stopped reading it because, you know, because she, she was my friend and I was like, oh no. But anyway, now she's, her next book's coming out and I'm actually going to be speaking with her in, in San Francisco. And so anyway, so I finished it and it was wonderful. And, um, and to really see how she shaped that, that arc, that character arc that we were talking about at the beginning and how she used this voice that was, um, kind of a now or, you know, a more mature narrative voice that could get really close to that 19 year old who was struggling, um, but also had a perspective on her. So it was this kind of, it was a, just a very beautifully handled um, kind of reach that it didn't feel like it was actually sliding in and out towards towards the 19 year old and back. It just felt like it had found a place to balance that could hold the 19 year old's thoughts and perspectives, but really it was being told to us from, from sort of a now. And, um, and I thought that was, really beautiful and it's so it's given me something to to think about in terms of of 
pulling the sense of, of a cohesive character from the smattering of impressions that one gets living inside oneself. <laughs> so... Well, thank you so much, Christine, and we, I hope you'll come back on when you're running around promoting these books because it was thrilling to, to talk to you. Oh, it's, that's awesome. I always like talking to you guys. I've missed you. <laughs> <Likewise>. <laughs> Anything else, Ange? Uh, from this part of our own house, there's nothing else going on. <laughs> All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks, Christine. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.